You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Core Curriculum, a show where the members of the Christian Humanist Radio Network travel slowly and deliberately through Columbia University's Core Humanities Reading List. This is Series 3, Episode 2, and we're talking about the love poems of Sappho. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I hold a PhD in Literature and Gender and Sexuality Studies from Florida State University, and I live in an Atlanta suburb with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our cat, Dorothy Parker. I work in community engagement for an Atlanta startup serving women entrepreneurs. Uh, and I'm very proud today to be on an all-Christian feminist podcast takeover of the core curriculum. Uh, two of my fellow CFP panelists are with me, Katie Grubbs and Christina Bieber-Lake. Katie Grubbs has a PhD in English literature from the University of Georgia and is an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. She lives in Sugarland, Texas with her husband David of the Christian Humanist Podcast and their four children. And in her... Uh, somehow spare time. She also enjoys teaching women's Bible study. Hey, Katie. Hey, I'm very excited to be here. And Christina Beaver-Lake is the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Thanks to COVID-19, she and her husband and son now have a new puppy that I can attest is very adorable. How's it going, Christina? Great. We're busy with puppy sitting, but we love it. Awesome. So as I said, this is an all CFP takeover of the core curriculum. Uh, Pretty exciting to be talking about Sappho and her love poems with you ladies. Uh, Let's start really quick by talking about the editions we're using. Uh, For this, I read Philip Freeman's Searching for Sappho. It's a pretty interesting exercise as a book because about 70 pages of it is the poems themselves and about 175 pages preceding the poems. Uh, Freeman tries to give as much historical and cultural commentary as he can, all the while admitting to us that we don't really know a lot of stuff for sure about Sappho um, and saying that because we don't really know a lot of stuff, he's had to collect sources Uh, sort of about Sappho based on what we know about Greek women in surrounding areas and in some cases adjacent time periods. So that gave me some pause uh, as uh, as someone who has some training as a literary scholar, Um, though also it is frustrating that there aren't a lot of uh, full texts of Sappho's poems available, so you do have to kind of Um, if you'll pardon the terrible metaphor, fill in some gaps. Uh, Nonetheless, his writing is very engaging. Um, I will be pulling from both chapter one on childhood and chapter five uh, on loving women a little bit as we go forward. Um, But I I wanted to 
preface my discussion of the poems by talking about that edition just because it is such an interesting uh, project as a book. What about the two of you? What editions are you using? Well, mine is the opposite in a lot of ways of that, uh, Victoria. I've got the Ann Carson version, which is what Columbia had on their website, so I just picked that up. I did not have anything that I already owned, and it has almost cryptic uh, introductory material. I'm talking about just a few pages of, of notes on the translation and some introduction to Sappho. And then it's just a lot of blank space where each poem is given, you know, its own page and all the fragments are indicated, um, lots of blank space. And it goes on, you know, for 400 pages, but the actual amount of text could fit in, in half that. And also I should say there's Greek on the opposing side, but I don't know Greek at all. So, so sometimes there'll be, you know, like page 242 and 243 is one line of Greek text on the left-hand side and cloth dripping in English on the right. So just to give you an idea of my translation. That's really interesting. So there's like um, sort of visual lacunae to, to tell you about the literary lacunae. Yeah, all the gaps, all the, and the lots of brackets to indicate broken text, you know, a very sort of postmodern feel to it. Uh, but I, but I like it. it. It feels placed on the page in a way that makes sense to me as a reader. So I, I really like this translation a lot. <clears throat> Excuse me. Cool. What about you, Katie? So the one that I was able to find that, um, I tried to find look for one that was a little more recent that was available online. And the one that I was able to find is the Poetry of Sappho, which was put out by Oxford University Press in 2007 by a guy, Jim Powell. Um, and it's the, the title page says translation and notes by, and that's a good description because this edition is pretty much just the poems um, with some very brief other materials. It sounds like a little bit similar to Christina's. So there's a translator's note and then, the poetry and then after the poetry not even before after the poetry in the book is like a two or three page little biographical sketch um and then uh a few pages about the actual text of the poems like the physical text and then abbreviations and, and bibliography um i think it it also seems a little bit similar to the description that christina gave of hers because um there are lots of brackets and things too, um, empty spaces to show where things are missing, things like that, which that was really interesting because it really did give me a feel for just how fragmentary, you know, if it was all kind of regularized, it might just look like you were reading very short poems. Um, but because the blank spaces are left there, it, it really gives you an idea of just how much is, is, is there. We just can't see it or it's gone. And, you know, so I, I don't know because I don't know, Greek. And because um, I haven't had time to look at any other translations, I don't know if this translation is very, very good or not. <laughs> um, but I felt safe that it was probably at least accurate, even if it's not the most winsome because it was Oxford UP. I'll have to see how it sounds compared to y'all's. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, my text, um, like I said, in addition to the huge amount of uh, prefatory material, which I don't want to be too down on because it is very compellingly written. Um, I'll read some excerpts in a bit. Um, it does denote the fragments in the text, but with ellipses 
rather than blank space, which I think is interesting. That's hmm. it, it's a different kind of signification, right? There, it's a it's a blank, but it is to my mind a less kind of rigid, permanent blank than the kind you're talking about in your texts. Yeah, that's really actually quite different, isn't it? It's almost like the the, the brackets feel more, I don't know, scientific or something, a little more mechanical than the ellipses. Right? Like the ellipses suggest there there's text in there, we just don't know what it is, where the brackets is like, this is a cutoff piece of um, manuscript. All right, lots of lots of interesting questions about blanks and canons and why we read the way we do, uh, which we'll keep coming back to, I'm sure. Um, but now that we've talked about additions just a bit, um, first real question of the discussion, let's talk about our experiences of Sappho before this. Had either of you read her poems before? Um, if yes, was this experience of reading any different than your previous ones? And if no, um, how did your first reading experience of Sappho compare to what you thought it would be like? Um, Christina, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think my classical background in general is is horrible. I just did not have any classical background. I did not read the Iliad, the Odyssey, any of that as a part of my formal education so I had read bits of Sappho the way that most of the, actually the early Greeks did, which would be like bits that were in other things, uh, other um, ancient Greek texts referring to her poetry. And the more that I read about her poetry, the more I realized that that's the way that most ancient uh, Greeks had um, encountered her. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, so, at, which is to say, very, very little. I had just had almost no exposure. I mean, I knew who she was. I knew the things uh, that we hear about her all the time, but had not actually sat down to read anything. So this was, that was part of the reason why I was really excited about this uh, particular portion of the core curriculum, because I just, like, I need to spend some time with this poet. So I was very excited about that, but my exposure prior to this was limited. How about you, Katie? This was my first experience with Sappho. I hadn't read any before. Um, like Christina, a lot like Christina mentioned, I didn't, I didn't have um, get much classics at all in my undergrad education or in grad school. Later on, I really wished I had because I think that it would have helped me catch so many more of the illusions in the early modern poetry that I was studying because that's that's kind of how um, based on my background I have tons of knowledge about early modern poetry but very little knowledge about stuff before that so this was my first experience um, I don't know what I thought I was going to be getting in terms of what the actual poetry and the language is like um, and so that was kind of interesting to encounter um, and I mean because it's in translation um, you know, it's hard to get a sense for the meter um, and things like that. But I, I tried to read up a little bit on the meter before I started reading to see what, you know, the original was, the cadence the original was supposed to maybe be. Um, but it was, it was really interesting and I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it. It is a little hard to get into because of the gaps, but I suppose that could also make a reader pay that much more attention to the words that are there because it's, not intentionally spare it has missing parts and as opposed to something like haiku or um you know i don't know 
E.E. E. Cummings or something where sometimes you have very few words. Um, and then that's that's what's supposed to be there. So the, the, it could it was frustrating, but also intriguing to wonder what was in those blank spaces. Great. Um, wow. I, I did not um, expect to be the person with the most Sappho experience here, uh, which is, is not a lot. Um, I probably read her for the first time in some like GRE prep book, uh, but I, I don't count that. Uh, the first time I actually read Sappho with the intent of reading Sappho was for um, a class in my doctoral program at Florida State on the history of lyric poetry. Um, shout out to Anne Coldiron, who uh, taught that class and is uh, still a mentor of mine. She's great. It was a super cool class because uh, she had us do these exercises where we had to write, produce every form we read about um, in addition to reading it. So it was like a, cool. a, high, a hybrid wow. creative. That's yeah, awesome. Super, super great. Um, I shamelessly stole a number of exercises she did uh, for us in my own classes. So we did a couple of exercises um, with Sappho in that class one where we wrote a poem and then had to choose a fragment or fragments of it to leave behind. Like, if you were writing this, which parts would you want people to not find if they had to not find them? Uh, okay, that's so awesome. Right? That she, sounds amazing. Genius. She's a genius. She probably will never hear this, but if she does, I love you, Anne, forever. Uh, and that exercise made me think a lot about... Uh, about canonicity, about women's voices, about how often women specifically get lost in the canon, um, which I think it was meant to do. We also did a second exercise where we turned um, existing sapphic fragments into a longer found poem. Um, and I remember that exercise because uh, when I wrote mine and read it to the class, I remember saying, uh, I'm really proud of this because I think it sounds like an Ani DeFranco song. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then everybody laughed at me, but I stand by it. I still think Sappho has a very Ani kind of vibe. Um, and, and I maintain that point of view. That's really funny. And you know what's so interesting to me about all of this is that two things. I have read that part of the reason why we have so many just fragments is that so many people just kind of knew her little bits and pieces of poetry that they never bothered to write or rewrite it down. So it's her popularity that's the reason why we don't have a lot of the actual written text. So interesting. But also that these are poems so much about desire. So all of the gaps make sense, right? Like they yes. just leave you longing for more. And it's just something that's so extraordinary about reading this because of those gaps and the things that are missing. So that assignment is just brilliant. Yeah, we, uh, we will talk much more about desire uh, going forward. So I want to talk about a couple of poems in full, and then I'll let the two of you take us to other places on the list of, I think, about 10 or so poems uh, we were given for the love poem section. The first place I want to go is poem number. Uh, we should say these poems primarily have um, numbers instead of titles. Uh, poem number 16. 
Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, though my first line is, uh, some say an army of horsemen, others a host of infantry. Um, I think this poem is really interesting because of what it's doing with other um, literary styles that are typically more gendered male. Um, but before I talk a great deal about that, I want to read a paragraph from very early in uh, Freeman's prefatory uh, material, the childhood chapter, that kept coming back to me during the poem itself, uh, that I think is also a really good example of Freeman's uh, kind of invention and invocation of maybe not all the way true history and also his really compelling uh, writing style. Uh, so he's talking about birth in ancient Greece. Um, whether because of the inability of a family to feed a child, questionable paternity, birth defects, or other reasons, a father could choose to leave a child to die in the forest, on a dung heap, or in a place where it might be found by someone who would adopt it. In Sparta, city elders examined all infants to decide those worthy to live, and those who failed the test were thrown into a pit on a nearby mountain. To the ancient Greeks, exposure was not infanticide, since the child was not killed outright but had its fate placed in the hands of the gods. In this way of thinking, the parents could avoid blood guilt that came with murder. Um, and he goes on to say that this is a very gendered practice. Males were more valued than females for economic reasons in a world where parents relied on sons to provide labor and to care for them in the, their later years, so it's likely more girls were left to die than boys. The ancient Greek comedy writer Posipitus was undoubtedly exaggerating, but there must have been some truth in his grim humor. If you have a son, you raise him, even if you're poor. If you have a daughter, you expose her, even if you're rich. We have no idea how common the practice was on Lesbos, but it's likely that on the day Sappho was born into a world of comfort and welcome, the cries of abandoned baby girls were fading into silence somewhere on the island. So we have well this, right? Right. That's a tense. It is. And the three of us, we're talking about Plato about that very issue. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, so that image, which Katie is right, is super intense. This image of Sappho being born loud and crying. Uh, and uh, this idea that somewhere, probably not very far away, there are dozens of other baby girls who are going to not have voices. Um, I think is, is such a very powerful image, especially given all the things we've already said about Sappho's place in the canon um, and how much of her texts are left or not. So back to uh, this poem, which is super interesting because uh, it's partly retelling the story of Helen of Troy, but from the perspective of Helen, and then it turns into a meditation on the speaker's love for another woman. Um, so I'm just going to read a few stanzas, but not the whole thing. Some say an army of horsemen, others a host of infantry, others a fleet of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth, but I say it's whatever you love. It's perfectly easy to make this clear to everyone, for she who surpassed all in beauty, Helen, left behind her most noble husband and went sailing off to Troy, giving no thought at all to her child or her dear parents, but 
led her astray for lightly reminded me now of Anactoria who is not here um, and I'm gonna stop there but what I think is super fascinating about this is that it in addition to kind of giving a female perspective on a typically male-centered event um, it kind of wears that centering that recentering on its sleeve some say this I say different and then uh, the kind of even deeper switch about um, Helen at the center of the story here's everything she left behind and then even deeper this reminds me of someone who is not here so I, I just love that use of uh, male literary tradition to talk about uh, a different kind of female absence in the perspective of a woman. What do the two of you think about this poem? That's really good reading. Um, my initial take, and my translation is very similar to yours, uh, some men say an army of horse and some men say an army of, on foot and some say an army of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth, but I say it is what you love as such a complete slap in the face of epic poetry and its concerns in so many ways, right? These are men's things, these armies, these horses, these ships and all of that. And then turns to the poet, the speaker say, I say it's what you love. So it's personalized, it, you know, a complete move from epic to lyric uh, was just stunning to me. In just a few lines, she makes that transition and then says lyric is way more important. So that's what I read from this. And then, of course, adding on to that, an individual person's love was just extraordinary to me. I found it really interesting that um, sh she said that the argument she's making is these are things that would be thought of as beautiful, but um, you know, I personally, I think it's whatever you love best. That's interesting because in the stories, Helen was this person who was considered objectively beautiful by everyone, the right? That she was a thousand kind of, ships and burnt the topless yes. towers of Ilium. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, like universally, universally admired. And so it's interesting that she's using Helen to give a, a kind of description of a more, the best word I can think of is idiosyncratic type of love. You love one person specifically, that one person for what they are, and they are beautiful because you love them, not mm -hmm. because there's something anyone would admire or think is beautiful, if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say. It um, does. I mean, and she it's also a deeply Christian concept, actually. Right. <laughs> it the, goes back to a lot of different right? Christian Right. Well, letters. and I mean, she, she describes, I mean, she just, like, my, my translation, she describes uh, Anactoria's lovely face, sparkling glance. I mean, she describes that there are things about this other woman that are physically attractive. But the whole argument in the poem is, you know, whatever you love best, that's, that's my translation, says whatever you love best is the most beautiful thing. And I just, I think it's interesting that Helen is the example she went with, but I love it. And I want to be clear, I don't think that uh, Sappho is talking about Christianity. I do recognize this was written before Christ. But the idea of an individual person's beauty, uh, you know, being coming from somebody is beautiful because you love them. 
not the reverse, is picked up in Kierkegaard and Bakhtin and many other Christian writers uh, sure. through the years. There's there's an innate dignity within yes. that idea that I don't think is is present in the inverse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite remarkable when you think about it. Definitely. It's, it's very beautiful. Um, is there anything else we want to say about that poem before we move on? Y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think back to the epics and when I think about the way that Helen is usually characterized, you know, she's, she's kind of from the male, I guess, from the male perspective of the men in the story, she's just this kind of, you know, she seems more like a pawn that's being passed from man to man. Um, and in this, and, and in this particular poem, she, she is still kind of depicted as a pawn, but a pawn of the goddess. And it's interesting to me that Sappho focuses on, um, in some ways on Helen's actions and her agency. So she, my translation says abandoning her husband, um, you know, and then emphasizing that she didn't give a thought to her child or her loving parents. Um, it's just, it's interesting that she's, um, she pushes on the negative aspects of Helen's actions. Oh, true. And also her agency just in general. Yes. Yes. I mean, until yeah. you get to when this, when the goddess seduced her wits and left her to wander. I mean, you know, like, so she, she's saying the goddess made her do these things, but at the same time she did these things. She doesn't say when she was taken by Paris or when, you know, whatever. It's just interesting. Um, that was the first actually, and I, I'm glad I remember to say it. it was the first thing I noticed when I read the poem. Um, because usually when you, when people talk about Helen or whatever, it's, it's, oh, and then, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's this tug of war between her husband and Paris and it's about their agency, their actions more than it is about mm-hmm. her. Well, mine doesn't even have a goddess in here. Mention my, any of that. Mine <laughs> doesn't either. It says, but ellipsis led her astray. So there's an implication of an outside force, which I assumed to be a deity because that's how the Greek mm-hmm. deities work. But that's um, super interesting. Yeah. Mine doesn't have it either. I'm assuming I'm assuming the goddess is Aphrodite, but I can't remember. Um, it says when the goddess seduced her wits and left her to wander. Yeah, that's no, that's an added in. That's added in. Okay. I mean, well, Aphrodite then, then, is other places in these poems, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think we're going to leave that to whoever is talking about the god section, um, primarily. Yeah, but I mean, it, clearly that was something inter. Yes, which and I'm glad that I'm glad yeah. I mentioned it because I didn't realize that because I only looked at this translation, I didn't realize that that wasn't in everybody. So I guess he made a decision yeah. to, to maybe he felt safe enough to say what he thought was <laughs> happening there. Um, well, then in that case, in a translation that doesn't include that particular phrase, then it's really focused on her agency because it's not imputed to, you know, the totally. Goddess. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Which is also in keeping with the lyric, as I was mentioning, you know, the the intensely personal focus on one's emotions and one's own agency and desires and so forth. Yeah, that's true. It is, it is kind of central to the, the mode of the form, the form, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's, let's keep talking about gods um, and, and move to poem 31. um, And I am going to read the whole thing, or as much of the whole thing as I have, um, because it's, it's shorter than the other one. He seems to me equal to the gods, that man who sits opposite you and listens near to your sweet voice and lovely laughter. My heart begins to flutter in my chest. When I look at you even for a moment, I can no longer speak. 
My tongue fails, and a subtle fire races beneath my skin. I see nothing with my eyes, and my ears hum. Sweat pours from me, and a trembling seizes my whole body. I am greener than grass, and it seems I am a little short of dying. But all must be endured, for even a poor man... And then it trails off. So I think this might be my favorite. And it's because of how unabashedly physical it is. I love how intense the physicality is. It makes me remember what your body feels like when you fall in love with someone. This feeling that you can't really control your bodily reactions uh, and also you kind of don't entirely want to. Uh, I think that's just really terrifying and beautiful and wonderful and scary uh, mm. all in the same moment. It also, the, the beginning, the invocation of the man to, the man as, as a way essentially for the speaker to talk about how wonderful this woman is, um, reminds me of the Shakespearean sonnets to the young man, um, and also I guess this is Petrarch too, um, this idea of relying on the poem itself as reproductive metaphor to connect the speaker to his love object so that they can, uh, they can be closer. Um, I think the, the speaker here is using her love object's male lover um, in a similar way. So what, uh, what do the two of you think about this poem? Do you think I'm uh, right to be so into the physicality here or are there other things going on? Katie, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I really liked it too, Victoria, for the same reason. So, so much of the, the early modern poetry um, is, I don't, is, is, is passionate and is trying to be passionate, but is not usually physical, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. And, and because, and specifically because she, she talks about being greener than the grasses. It made me, I mean, it made me think though of early modern descriptions of green sickness. Yep. I wrote you know. Galen um, green sickness next to yep. my margin. Um, and I didn't know, and you guys can tell me, I wrote down in that part about being greener. Um, I couldn't decide if I felt like she was saying that she, it, because she feels sick, she's green, or if this is a jealousy thing. But I don't know how long that that metaphor or that association of being jealous with the, the color green, how long that's been around. Maybe it hasn't been around that long. It's <laughs> very old. Um, so I okay. think that could be there. Um, though I read it greenness as like newness, like awakening and spring and oh yeah, re reproduction, okay. all that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And I also noticed too, that she doesn't, she doesn't touch on every single one of them, but, um, she, she hits almost all of the senses. So, yes. um, there's, you know, she's hearing the laughter. She's, um, you know, her, she's talking about her eyes can't see anything. She's hearing, you know, uh, mine says a, a whirring whistle thrums at my hearing, um, trembling, cold sweat, um, she doesn't talk about tasting anything, but at least in this translation of mine, she keeps it, more than once is the phrase sweetness to describe the sound of the other woman's voice. So even though it's not a physical taste, the, the idea of a sweet kind of taste is there, but it, with sound in, um, in the other, I, I don't know, as a reader, it immediately feels very intimate because you're not just 
It's not just an intimate experience being described, but it might give you memories of a time when you felt the same way. Um, so I, I, I thought it was super, super interesting. And this was one of the ones that it, it drove me the most crazy that the end is just gone. <laughs> I'm like, yes. why must it all be weird? Like, you know, yes. and Mine doesn't have the word man at the end of my line, Victoria. So the, the last line in this one says, but all must be endured since even a poor. And then it just stops. There's like a bracket. Um, so I was thinking, oh, I think I what? like it better without the gender designation. Yeah, there was no gender designation in, in, the, in my translation. Um, but yeah, it was it was just kind of I, I was very dissatisfied at this in, with this one that it just broke off. But, but I, yeah, I really liked it. It's appropriate in a certain way, right? Because. The poem is so much about not even delayed gratification, lack of gratification. This sort of, it, it's all about the buildup, um, which I, yeah. I, I mm -hmm. think in, intensifies the, the physicality in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this poem was the pivot point of a larger article that I read because I just had so little exposure to Sappho. So I read this piece called Reflecting Sappho, and by Glenn Most back in the 90s. And his whole argument was that, of course, and this is nothing new, Sappho has been recreated and appropriated by every single age from the ancient Greeks forward. And they made her into whatever version of her they wanted or needed her to be. Yeah, Freeman talks about <laughs> you know? that too. Mm -hmm. The ancients saw her as resolutely heterosexual, in fact, even like a whore and emphasized um, in, in a uh, almost sarcastic kind of way her uh, dying for this man, Phaon. I'm sure you read about that too, Victoria, you know, yeah. throwing herself off the cliff because she couldn't get her lovers, but yeah, heterosexual. One, one thing that Freeman says, um, which kind of won me over um, to his points of view, even though I still um, feel like he's kind of grasping at straws historically in some ways um but one thing he says is even back then the ancient greeks knew that uh the easiest and best and kind of most final way they had to discredit sappho um was to call her a whore yes and, that's and, right and i was like okay the more things change the more they stay the same like that seems that seems accurate Oh, yeah. And that's the point also of this particular article that I read is that they make Sappho in what, into what they need her to be. And that's often to discredit her. Right. So it's like or to, to try to defend her. Well, she's a lesbian. She's not, you know, <laughs> it just depends on the particular take of the writers. And of course, during the romantic period is kind of the highlight of this, that they make her into the quintessential romantic poet who is just conflicted, lives a life of idealistic longing, neoplatonic kind of longing, and then no way to kind of, you know, take care of that here, you know? So I, I was, it was a really interesting argument because he said that it comes down to this poem number 31, that you can read it either as a kind of longing for a woman that uh, is with this other man or a longing for the man and jealousy of the woman. And oh, so, so Katie, you know, the whole greener than grass being read as envy is a way of reading this poem. And he's exactly right. There's no exact evidence of which one it is. Like, we don't know. And, and some of it comes down to the translation of the last line. You had alls to be endured, Victoria and Katie, right? 
Yeah, all, but all must be endured. That's what yeah. it says. Mine yeah, is mine all too. is to be. Mine is all is to be dared, which Ooh, is a very different wow. reading. Cool. You know, and, and is definitely more on the side of the uh, the homosexual longing. You know, the sort of um, longing for the woman. Or right? or or um, also, I would think lends itself to a a big R romantic reading too, because you could sort of plop it in the carpe diem. Totally. Right? Like, oh, totally. I mean, yeah. it, it could easily be Marvel or something like that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I might as well just go for it. Right. Be- and, and then my, my last line is, but all is to be dared because even a person of poverty and then it just cuts off. Like, and then you're like, just what you were saying. It's like, what is that? You know, even a, a person of poverty a, a deserves person to... of poverty. So, yeah. so you have daring and a lack of gender designation. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And I think mine is the newest of the translations, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but again, going back to Glenn Most's point is just servicing our particular 21st century need for uh, Sappho to be a certain way, right? We want her to be on the side of, um, you know, homoeroticism. Sure, and and feminism, and feminism, right? Yeah, to be resolutely on the side of that, right? And so it's just so interesting. And I mean, of course, this is a totally obvious point, but it nonetheless bears repeating over and over again that when we have so little of somebody's background, history, and even their text, we just fill in all the blanks with our own desires. Which is not perhaps surprising, given that there are people that we have way, 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 way more information about, like Shakespeare. Still, people still try to make, yeah, people still try to make him be whatever they want him to be. So, yeah, totally. that, it's even easier, perhaps, to try to bend her to your own will. Yeah, I was, I was definitely, while both of you were talking, thinking about that incredibly famous by this point um, commentary in Stephen Booth's version of Shakespeare's sonnets, where he's talking about sexuality, right? Uh, William Shakespeare was almost certainly either heterosexual or homosexual, period. The sonnets have absolutely nothing to say on the matter, period. And and that's yeah. kind of like oh Stephen yes. Booth's mic drop. Um, so, yeah, I, yes. I do think we, we... Perfect example. We use a lot of literary figures the same way, um, and, and Sappho is no exception. Yeah, and so this article is something I would recommend to both of you because just even for the historical sense of what we've tried to do to solve the problems. We've tried to make two Sapphos that was happened in the 16th century. We tried to make a Sappho that was one way first and then another way second. And that happened in the 18th century. (laughs) And it's like, wow, Uh, you can just trace the, the line of criticism right through the present day and what we need. But I mean, even if we had the whole text, whatever that means, and we'd still be doing that, right? We'd still I mean, do you, it. We'd um, still we talked, I don't know how many TFP episodes ago this was, but uh, when we did that episode on Emily Dickinson, we talked about um, people kind of claiming her as a queer figure and, and why you would do that or not do that and how much evidence is there for it. And I mean, you know, we we want totally. we we want to see ourselves and our society in literary texts because 
representation is a good and powerful thing. Um, but, but sometimes we stretch texts to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and hermeneutics are not stable. They change with, uh, with values and, and time periods. And that's mm-hmm. why it's in, important to be able to interrogate your own hermeneutic too. Yeah. I just got finished teaching literary theory class and that is one of Gadamer's main points. And he's kind of a central figure in the, in the class because he understands that you're always going to be coming from your own perspective. You, you can never stop that. So acknowledging it is just the beginning of, you know, hermeneutics (laughs) and accepting it and not expecting that you can have a kind of a God's eye view of any text. And the students really appreciated that because there's just so little in the way of humility when it comes to hermeneutics anywhere to be found. Yeah, absolutely. I, I found that um, in my own teaching, too, that I, I got the most responses from my students um, when I admitted that I didn't know something. Exactly. The knowledge that one does not know. You know, that's the way that Gadamer puts it. And, um, and it's just so interesting, especially when you're talking about women like Emily Dickinson and Sappho, who have a lot of similarities, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and so there's this that fascinating, almost it's almost like Emily Dickinson with all those dashes just had that same kind of gaps that were placed in between and just sort of begging the reader, almost tantalizing the reader to try to figure it out, you know. Wow, cool. I didn't even mean to go there, but that's super interesting. <laughs> okay, um, well, I do. I want to end eventually with uh, 94, but before we get there, are there other poems and fragments on the list that the two of you would like to make sure we hit uh, before we divert to some broader stylistic and thematic concerns? I liked the one, and I think, I can't remember the number, the one that starts talking about the moon and the Pleiades. Um... I know where that is. That's uh, that's toward the end of the section. One thirty-eight? No, it's not one thirty-eight. I thought it was really late in there, but sorry, these numbers were a little different in my translation, and so it took me a little while to find out. I had one sixty-eight. One sixty-eight. Yeah, one. Okay, let me get all the way down to the bottom here. Um, and this is going to fit right in with what we were talking about comparing when you were comparing Dickinson, because the reason that this one was fun or that I, I really enjoyed this one is because it reminded me of another poem. Um, 130, 168B. Uh, it's very short. Um, my translation, it begins, Moon set already, the Pleiades to midnight, the hour passes and I lie down, a lonely woman. Um, I This immediately made me think of Malay's sonnet, What Lips My Lips Have Kissed and Where and Why. Do you guys know that sonnet? Yes. No, but... Um, Okay, so, and I can pull that one up too, because both of these, both both this Sappho fragment and, and that poem um, are about having had lovers, and now all the lovers are gone, and you're older and sad. Because with your, I don't know, I don't know if, if the reason is, if that's the reason in the Sappho fragment, but, um, but the idea of having lost loves and now being alone um, and so the, the Malay sonnet starts, um, 
what lips Edna St. Vincent Millay, sorry, I should have said the full name for listeners who um, aren't familiar. Uh, what lips my lips have kissed and where and why I have forgotten and what arms have lain under my head till morning. But the rain is full of ghosts tonight that tap and sigh upon the glass and listen for reply. And in my heart, there's sure's a quiet pain for unremembered lads that will not again, that not again will turn to me at midnight with a cry. Um, and I, th- I think there was the word midnight that tripped it in my head. And I thought, what does that sound like? Um, but it made me, it was, I, I, it made me love this fragment even more because that, you, you know, in Sappho, you only need four lines to kind of give that same, she only needed four lines to give that same mood. I know there was more originally, I'm sure of this poem, but um, you kind of get that same feeling in this fragment as I always have in Malay's sonnet. And I thought it was, it was really poignant. That's the word that I couldn't think of until just now. Well, and it's just such a classic. I mean, it's the core of almost every blues song, you know, it's this, it's the middle of the night and I'm alone. Right. I actually wrote in my margin, Billy holiday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's, I mean, that's another great one. My, in my notes, I wrote, it's nighttime, but I'm all alone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, but I mean, because it, it is, it's, it's, my students would say it's a mood, right? Yeah, and, it's and, a mood. It's, yes, and, and I love, so that one, that one I particularly, it caught my eye, and I, it, it would be interesting, I think, next time I teach that, because I teach the Malay poem um, every time I teach Comp 2, it'd be interesting to also give them that fragment and maybe have them compare the two and see what they think about it. Yeah, and I hate to beat this like a drum but the lyric is so important like that these are songs right the connection to singing emotion sadness blues you know feeling it and experiencing it uh, as a way to get through it is just so important right I think that struck me there's definitely a reason that my marginalia is so much about music and singers yes I I mentioned um I mentioned Ani DeFranco um, earlier. I just said this reminded me of Billie Holiday. Um, I know I have Tori Amos written several times. Oh, yes. Uh, too. Um, so lots 100%. Of, lots yeah. of kind of sad, longing, um, yes. mournful women singers happening in my notes. And yet you're right. Lyric is, is about, um, you know, about singing and, and emotion so much as a form. Yeah. And I mean, it's so basic but lyric has to do with liar right the, um oh yeah please that, please take just... us through that it's basic but necessary <laughs> yeah i mean it comes from the word liar uh the the instrument that uh you know so many of the romantic poets like shelley just loved right that the poet is like a liar himself well not l-i-a-r but l-y-r-e and the pathos of the world just flows through the poet musically and and is even beyond the words themselves and just in the music you know poetry aspires to the condition of music isn't that the great romantic um desire for what poetry should look like who was it that said that i can't remember Uh, i'm an americanist but you know aspiring to the condition of music because there's pathos and longing in music and in tones that there's not in the words themselves. And and in fact, many of the romantics would say that the words clog the deeper meaning of the lyric. Uh, that's Walter Pater. Thank you, Walter Pater. And I, I did not remember that, though I was taught that at some point in graduate school. I just Googled it while you were talking. So You are such a fast Googler. Oh, apologies. <laughs> 
I but I at one point I knew that probably at some other stage in the GRE prep process. Oh, I knew it too at some point, but it just went out of my brain. But but yeah, it's just such a you know romantic notion. And again, this is why the the romantic period taking on Sappho and trying to make her into that sort of ideal uh, poet of paradox and uh, the Neoplatonic energy makes perfect sense. Um, and in part because we have so little of it and what we do have is so musical. So we've talked a lot about tropes and styles that um, that we were taught came later. Um, we've mentioned Shakespeare and Millet and Petrarch um, so what does all of that mean if, if this style and figurative language um, that is in Sappho, if we were taught it as representing later traditions, but it actually appears here earlier, um, what should we make of all of that? To my mind, Victoria, that's the question of the hour. Um, because whenever I think about ancient Greek poetry, I think about epic, and I, I don't think about lyric. Um, and again, I told you I'm not, you know, super involved with classic literature, classical literature, but the epic seems to take the day. And here is a woman who is resolutely lyrical, and the focus is on, on the individual emotion, and uh, also the senses, as you all had pointed out. So I just feel like what you're asking is the central question. Uh, then good, I guess, but I, I certainly don't have an answer to that question. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know that there is an answer to be had without talking about history and the canon and these kind of giant overarching um, literary roadblocks. Yeah, it's it's so difficult because it, I feel like that some of the same writers you're talking about, like in the early modern period, um, at least the male writers, um, I, I can't, I mean, you know, unless you're talking about somebody like Mary Sidney Herbert, um, women weren't usually given the same education, but, you know, those guys were being given these kind of classical epics at school, but they almost certainly weren't being handed Sappho just as Sappho. And there may have been some snatches of things mixed in, like, you know, um, like you guys were mentioning earlier, people quoting her in other texts. Sappho by way of Longinus or someone else. And so maybe they got little bits of it. Um, But it it is interesting to, to see that, that she was already working in this mode. And, and you're right. I don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's, it's intriguing is the best word I can think. And it, and, it, and it would be interesting to go back and try to trace what, you know, what kept, what survived from Sappho and kept kind of moving forward through history to arrive at something like the Petrarchan Sonnet or, you know, whatever um, later incarnations you want to talk about. Um, because I feel like this is reading Sappho feels like the unvarnished, you know, it's true. Yeah. It feels like before it's time, but it's not, it was already there. Yeah. I mean, look at number 47. Eros shook my mind like a mountain wind falling on oak trees is my translation. I mean, that is imagist poetry, right? And, Um, and 130. 130 is my next. Yeah. 
Eros, the melter of limbs is what I've got. What do you have for that? Mine says Eros, limb slackener. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a word. Shakes me again, that sweet, bitter, impossible creature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a modern sensibility there. Melter of limbs or shaker of, of limbs. And I have. Uh, Eros, yeah. I have once again, limb loosening love makes me tremble. That bittersweet, irresistible creature. Mm-hmm. I like the alliteration of limb loosening love. Yes. Yeah, that translator was really on the ball with that. But Victoria, it's like you were saying about that other uh, poem that you like, that that the feeling of actually being there and what it's like when you're falling in love and and it's in your body, right? And you you just can't explain it, and it just it's like a drug or something, right? She gets at that. And it's, it seems like it took centuries for us to get back to that, the more raw, as you put it, Katie, um, poetic sensibility. And to me, to, to have that kind of rich physical reliance on embodiment come from a female poet still yes. feels progressive to me. I mean, it's, and- it is. Yeah, I would agree. And this is this definitely seals the deal for me. I'm teaching women writers in the fall, and I'm definitely starting with this. I think that's great. I would uh, love to hear what your students think about that. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting. It's actually a, a really fantastic lead-in to uh, the next point I want to make. Um, so I, I mentioned reading Sappho for really the first time um, in graduate school with uh, Anne, my beloved mentor, and I remember talking to her in her office about them, and I should say, the first time I read these poems, when I was in her class, I was 23 years old and had been married something like six months. Probably. Oh, mere babe in arms. Teeny, teeny, tiny. I was a teeny, <laughs> teeny baby. Um, and right i'd been married 5 minutes and uh, <laughs> and and i remember saying uh to her in her office thank goodness i did not say this um in class like you know i i thought these poems were supposed to be sexy and i don't really get it and <laughs> and y'all i i say this with much love in my heart and introspection and and time find you a mentor that will very nicely tell you when you are being young and stupid (laughs) (laughs) i love it Uh, and and god bless Anne forever and ever um she did that she told me very nicely that like maybe i needed a few more years and and some life experience (laughs) under my belt before i said uh that these poems weren't sexy and and honestly like now i'm 34 and coming up on my 11th wedding anniversary in about a week and a half hooray um and these poems read much differently to me now than they did then and and they're sexy because they're intimate they they're I don't know, I just keep coming back to that word intimate. These poems are about um, knowing someone and knowing that person knows you and all the vulnerability and scariness that is wrapped up in that. And and that's why I think I couldn't get it when I was 23 the way I get it now. Because sex and relationships were very different things to me then 
they were um, sort of more more romantic, but not in the real way, more shaped by TV and movies and less shaped by real experience of life alongside another human being than they are now. Yeah, I think when you're a very young, young, I don't know if this is true of everybody, I feel like when you're a very young, young person, the the excitement often comes from not knowing that much about someone. (laughs) Like someone who seems mysterious or, you know, um, it, it's it's the kind of excitement that, you know, that you might get if you have like a crush and you think that that's that's the, you know, that's the, the, the height of excitement or the, you know, or the, you know, the most sexy thing ever. Like, but then this is this is the kind of um i guess response you would have like you said to somebody that you're that you know intimately um and so i think that's one reason i would agree with you i think that's one reason that maturity really brings out um really brings out these poems better um it's just because what you what we find sexy when we're very young people doesn't tend to be we don't tend to feel the same way when we get older and not to say that i am any kind of expert on love or sex or marriage at my current time and age I'm not. I'm still making it up. I probably will always feel like I'm making it up. Um, But I I certainly think I have a a perspective and hopefully a maturity that I did not have at 23. Hopefully. (laughs) I'm sure sure you do, Victoria. I'm sure you do as well. (laughs) I mean, but really what we're talking about is desire again, right? Um, You know, Katie, you said that when you're younger, you know, People think that it's really more about like people you don't know, but really desire works like that for everybody. We find more desirable that which we really don't understand or we find mysterious, right? So part of the whole intriguing thing about all the gaps in these poetry in these poems is that it keeps that desire in play. It keeps that tension in play so that you're forced to fill in the gaps. And we just find that inherently sexier i mean it's keats right oh ode on the grecian urn like she's always going to be desirable because you can't kiss her right um she only becomes undesirable when you actually like are able to uh conquer her right how does the line go and it's late i'm tired but unheard melodies are sweeter oh right uh so uh, heard, heard sounds are sweet, but those unheard yeah. are sweeter. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, you're not ever going to kiss her lips because we're stuck here on the side of a, a Grecian urn, but she'll never go bad. Right? <laughs> yeah. Desire is stronger when it, it's not met, when you can't meet it, when it's just there as a, as a promise or, or somebody across the way that you don't actually have a relationship with. And, and there's some of that in this, in this poetry. All right, so let's keep talking about presence and absence and uh, go to poem 94 to wrap us up. Um, Yeah, I'll just read the whole thing. Um, I honestly wish I were dead. Weeping, she left me with many tears and said this, Oh, this has turned out so badly for us, Sappho. Truly, I leave you against my will. And I answered her, be happy and go and remember me, for you know how much we loved you. But if not, I want to remind you and the good times we had for many crowns of violets and roses and 
you put on by my side, and many woven garlands made from flowers around your soft throat, and with much perfume, costly, fit for a queen, you anointed yourself, and on a soft bed, delicate, you let loose your desire, and not any, nor any holy place, nor from which we were absent, no grove, no dance, no sound. Uh, so in terms of all the things you were just saying, Christina, about presence and absence and desire and, uh, and, and how not having something makes you want it more, um, what do we make of this poem? Nor any holy place, nor was there from which we were absent, no grove, no dance, no sound, all of those negatives, right? Um, there's not this, not this, not that. And it's just absence, it's gaps. And in those gaps is the longing. Um, and we're left with the gaps, uh, with the absences. And and to me, I don't know, after reading all of this, it feels like the kind of paradigmatic Sappho poem, if you will. I don't know, is that the way that you read it, Katie or Victoria? I... I Go you ahead, go ahead Victoria, because I'm still formulating my sentence in my mind the okay. way that I want to say it. You go ahead. Um, I, I did want to end here because I, I do think this is, this poem has kind of all the things in it that, uh, that the rest of our conversation has too. Um, and I think you're, you're dead on, Christina, about the, the prevalence of absence here and, and what that does for the intensity of desire um, and I would add, I think, the the section about the uh, the crowns of flowers and the and wearing um, flower garlands on her head and throat. Um, there, even the wholeness is absence. You you have these symbols mm -hmm. of impermanence that are also symbols of uh, eternity, right? Because they're they're circles, but they're circles made of flowers that are going to die, um, which you know makes me think of so many. Uh, 18th century paintings, um, Malaisophilia, and, and sort of all of those paintings of, of dead, oh, yes. dead women draped in flowers, right? Um, I, I feel like all, all of that is, is evoked by this, um, too. Yeah, not to hit on romantic poetry again, but that's a major theme in romantic poetry, right? The flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying, right? Like, it's just part of it. And to have the first poem be I, the first line of the poem be, I simply want to be dead, right? Like, I want to be absent from this feeling of absence is just really the whole point of it. It's like, it's so torturous to be left with this longing, to be left with this absence that I would just rather be dead. I, I, it was interesting to me. I wasn't thinking about any of that, but, but that's, I think that I, I got caught up when I was reading this poem and trying to figure out the situation and what's actually happening. Because the first time I read it, I kind of interpreted this particular scene as that this other woman is leaving, maybe because Sappho asked her to go. Um, that's mm. kind of how I took it the first time. Cause she, she's, she says that she's, she swears she's leaving against her will. She says she wants to die. She's crying. And Sappho says, go, farewell, <laughs> and remember me. And I almost was was kind of 
like feeling it as like a as like a breakup. Well, um, there are there are other poems where she's essentially telling a woman that she loves to go marry a man. Okay, uh, then, yeah. then maybe that's what's happening here, and that would also make perfect sense out of out of how this is is going. Um, but when I when I was um, and I and that maybe that's what's happening. Then the first time I read it, I was interpreting it as that Sappho was had asked her to go, perhaps. But it felt like the the first voice, the honestly I would like to die, the crying one was maybe younger. Um, it felt I, I was kind of reading it as like maybe teenage melodrama, um, or and and then Sappho with more maturity and more years saying, hey, there were really good times. We had all these one, you know, we had, look at all these things that we did, look at all these places we went, all these ways that we celebrated life, and so you should be happy about that, about the memories. But all that this other person can see is I'm about to be absent, like you were saying, I'm about to be absent from you, and I'm inconsolable. Um, but that would make it to me a more that would make it a less sad poem. I think if 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 taken the way that you said, Victoria, if she's been if she's leaving to get married or something, then it makes it much more sad because then Sappho, her voice is saying, "Remember these times, and you know that that you know it's it really is the end of a life like this." If she's you know leaving to get married to some guy, um, but then I'm glad I mentioned what I thought it was about because I didn't know that Victoria that that was I, I didn't realize that was I the don't same. know that that is definitely true of this poem but it is something that freeman mentions about several poems mm. okay i feel like we probably uh have more questions than answers an hour after we started but that's uh sometimes how we do things here at the christian humanist radio network uh so Christina or Katie, do either of you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Nope, I think that's accurate. I feel um, just that I, I'm I'm happy to have been introduced to this poetry because it's very excitingly different from so many other kind of things that I've spent more time studying. It's a breath of fresh air, so I like it. I, I would agree. I definitely recommend listeners, if you have not spent time with Sappho, uh, you will have several more episodes of the core curriculum uh, to give you an excuse to do that. So we hope you do. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the core curriculum, which is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can find show notes from this and other shows on the network at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. And you can follow the network on Twitter at at CH Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>